Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Daily Dialectic with me, Ted Matrakis. And I'm joined today by a very special guest, the great Ty Lee, everybody. Hello. Hello, everyone. It's our studio audience going wild with applause that Ty Lee's here. Yeah. Now Ty's clapping for herself. (laughs) Fucking ego on this person. Jesus Christ. She put on one show in New York and she thinks she's, you know... Hot shit. Hot shit. Yeah, we got to knock her down a peg, I think. That's what tonight's going to be all about. Break me down. We're breaking her down. (laughs) She's gotten too big for her goddamn britches. Literally. Like, you know. Um, So, September 21st, 2021, the last full night of summer before tomorrow. I guess tomorrow's the last night of summer, but we're right around the end of summer, which is good. You're not a summer fan, are you, Ty? Barely survived. Yeah. Barely survived. Yeah, I think... On death's door right now, as we speak. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Um, yeah, I think summer is the time of death, for sure. <laughs> Horrible time of death. Um, and so we're all lucky to escape it with our lives, I guess. But we escape it, and we're like half dead. So I think yeah. we wish we were dead. I don't definitely, know. definitely wishing, wishing death upon myself <laughs> constantly. Yeah. For sure. That's a yeah. that's kind of a good place to be though. Right. You know, it's a productive place. Yeah. It's better than wishing life on yourself. Like what is yeah, that? Yeah, that seems childish. Oh, I'm so glad to be alive. I hope I live forever. Oh God. So wonderful. Yuppies think that, and children think that. Exactly. Yeah. It's horrible. Immortality is for losers. Yeah. It's for idiots. Both should be killed. Yuppies and children. Yuppies and children. <laughs> yeah, we're already advocating child murder. <laughs> It's only been like a minute of the podcast so far. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. And that's why in previous times, you know, children should be seen and not heard. Right. Because if children talk, they're saying stupid shit that deserves death. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I don't know, maybe, maybe people were happier back then because they didn't have to listen to children. Right. And if children did talk, they would just kill them. Um, yeah. You know. And I think there's, <laughs> there's, there's wisdom in that. Yeah. They were onto something. This is the only leftist podcast that uh, advocates child murder. Um, yeah. Just for philosophical and artistic reasons. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yuppies should also be killed. And they, they want to live and they want to have long lives. Boomers, too. Uh, right. I think all the worst people want to extend their lives a lot. Yeah. It's a very yeah, yeah, yeah. bourgeois... Grimes. Uh, Grimes. She wants to live for a long time, I guess? Yeah, she all these about transhumanist this? kind of people. Right. The, 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 you know, fountain of youth type shit. Britney Spears actually had an interesting Instagram post the other day that was like, I'm going to live forever, forever as a youth. And I was just mm. like, it's very fascist, you know. Isn't she like 40? Yeah. She's 40. She's been like a bit of a... A slave or something. I don't quite get how that worked, but isn't that one of her songs? I'm a slave for you. Yeah. How do I know that? I don't know. Just through cultural osmosis, I guess. Yeah. I'm acting like I don't listen to her all the time and know (laughs) all of her songs inside and out. How do I know this song? Oh my god, weird. Wow. (laughs) It just got into my brain somehow. (laughs) So she's on the transhumanist train too. Kind of. She's a yuppie. Yeah. They're trying to make her seem like she's this revolutionary, oppressed figure. Yeah, I mean, you know? it's like, yes, it's horrible that she was... She was a retard, and so her dad didn't let her have her money anymore. 
Right. Like, I'm sure she was not spending her money in a good way. I don't know. Without that, she probably would have lost it all. Yeah, it's like... Stupid broad. Yeah, it's like putting her in a position of, like, uh, the kind of feminist icon. Yeah. It's it's really quite silly, because people are like, she was literally a slave, but she's in this, like, multi-million dollar house... Rich yeah. people can have problems too, Ty. I hate, I hate this. <laughs> I'm just like, not really. They're not like real problems. No. Like she would never Her problem get... is that she had too much money and she like <laughs> didn't know how to spend it or something. Right. She had too much money and was too famous. Yeah. Very relatable. Very, definitely not rich people problems. <laughs> she wants to live forever. Yeah. And so why does she want to live forever? I guess so she can keep doing the same songs that she was doing 20 years ago. Because she's not, like, writing new shit, I don't think. Is she growing as an artist? No. I, it's because they're all scared not. to die because they know how awful and horrible they are and they think they're going to go to hell. Is mm. that true? I think that's probably why these yuppies, these rich people, these bourgeois assholes, are so interested in transhumanism. Because, yeah, they know that they're going to pay for a life of fucking vamp- vampiric, ill-gotten gains. Um, yeah, and so they want to put that off for as long as possible. Right. But if your heart is pure, then you don't mind dying at any time. Right. Because you have nothing to fear. You you run straight towards death. Yeah. Every moment. <laughs> <laughs> right, because it'll be an end to your horrible, endless suffering. Right. Um, and you'll get to, I don't know, go to heaven if you believe in that shit. Or, right. I don't know, even if you don't believe in heaven, just like not being alive is its own reward. Right. Non-existence. Put me down. Yeah. Being put down. <laughs> being put out of your misery. That's yeah. heaven enough. Even if there's nothing after that, death is the sweetest fucking thing yeah, possible. the sweet, sweet void of death. Yeah. You get to become a void. Yeah, which is... I'm 100% all about that. I know you are. Yeah. Don't avoid the void. Become the void. Become the void. <laughs> Merge with the void. Yeah. So are, do you want to become the void, or do you want the void to become you... The dialectic of the void. Mm. You want to you want become to... the void. Yeah, so you can use it. Yeah. Right. And so I guess that's what death is. And so if you can live close to death, live dangerously as much as possible, then you can sort of harness the power of nothingness and of the void. Right. To make really fucking fucked up shit and weird art. Right, That's, I don't know, will hopefully... Not inspire people. I don't know. That's sort of a... Alienate them. Way. In a right. Martian way. Right. And so, lots of, like, stupid Marxists think that alienation's bad, but it's actually good, in a way. Because people are... They're alienated, but not in the right way. Right, They're sure. sort of... People are in love with their alienation, almost. People fetishize their alienation. Right, right, right. It's and so, art, revolutionary art, art of the void that utilizes the void, should make us encounter our alienation in a kind of new way. Right. Because we're too comfortable with our alienation. We're kind of at home in our alienation. And that's sure. bad. Sure, sure. We and sh- mm-hmm. it needs to be um, disrupted. Mm. Alienation as a tool, rather right. than a kind of like constant condition that we're kind of just living in. Alienation right. in the Brechtian sense, where it's like a a weapon that you use aesthetically and artistically mm-hmm. to kind of make someone break with uh, their like ideological 
common sense or something like this. Right, yeah. And so art should be a tool that you use to kind of, I guess, give shove people, push them in a kind of new direction. Um, but you don't really know where it's going to go. No, it's and, just the act of the doing the push. Yeah, and that creates its own uh, momentum. And it's going to be different for every person. Like any right, work right. you create or that any artist creates, it's going to be interpreted in a different way by everyone who experiences it or encounters it. And they might get something totally wrong out of it or something evil out of it or whatever, but that doesn't matter. It's still better than, I don't know. Things um, continuing as yeah. they are or whatever. Right. That's why these critics in the, in the press and all of these people that are supposed to be writing about the work, um, they're the enemies because what they end up doing, <laughs> what they end up doing is they take the work and this thing that is uh, just the action of the work itself. Mm -hmm. And then they try to contextualize it like, oh, these are all the surrealists. These are all the... And some people name themselves these things, but usually it's like, historically we go back and name them, or, um, you know, these critics name the things, and they're like, oh, you know, the, uh, the Judson Church Dance Theater, that was a whole scene, and this is exactly what they all were doing. And they kind of contextualize it and make it small right? so that it's easy for the audience to understand. And most importantly, it's an easier thing for people to buy and sell as a commodity. Right. Yeah, it shouldn't be easy for people to get into. Art should be hard to get into. It should be challenging. It, sh it should be, I don't know, it shouldn't be welcoming right. at all. It should be alienating. Yeah, and yeah. if you're packaging surrealism or any kind of like artistic movement as like this historical period or this like cultural, you know, space or something, then yeah, that reduces it and packages it and makes it something that, you know, people can like identify with right. sort of, or that can comfort them. And it makes it, uh, you know, you're kind of choreographed to see it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this person is, um making a postmodern theater because I read about it in some fucking magazine yeah. or whatever the fuck. I know what this is. This is postmodern theater. I can identify that. Yeah. And then you come in I get this. with all of these preconceived notions of what it is and then you can't even really actually see the work and let it... Right. Because you have these expectations exactly. for what it is. And with something like Belch, uh, postmodern... <laughs> Sorry, I'm drinking beer. Um, with, with something like uh, postmodern theater or any kind of like experimental art, anything avant-garde, having any kind of expectations of it ruins it and goes against the whole like, spirit of what it's supposed to be. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it should be something that is totally alienating. But, yeah, in order to, I don't know, make a living as an artist or have any kind of profile as an artist... It has to, I don't know, be absorbed or subsumed by the culture industry, by, you know, the bourgeois literary community. Um, and I guess that's in inevitable because that's what we're living under. But yeah, it does reduce everything to something that can be consumed and sort of understood. Um, but that takes away the essential revolutionary nature of it, which is as a void. And so how can a void be like described or understood or communicated? It can't, or contextualized. It can't be. 
Like no, if you, not at all. Yeah. And because you don't even know what it is when you're doing it. You can't even, the artist themselves can't even do it. And why would you want right. to do that? But then, okay, so you have someone like John Zorn, who's a, mm-hmm. a big hero of mine, who has constantly kind of not been able to be pinned down, has constantly been like very much a curmudgeon with the press. Mm-hmm. And he's absolutely correct in doing that because he's trying to protect his work. So there is a way to, like, not succumb to this, like, uh, being able to be defined so easily. You know, he's one example of that. Right. But people do try to be like, oh, you know, he's a a postmodern composer, whatever they might call him. But he's constantly changing what he's doing, and that's kind of the only way to be authentic, is to always be changing. Right. Not to be like, oh, this is me. This is my style. Style's a bullshit. Mm. Style as like a thing that never changes is a bullshit concept. But yeah, because I think art, uh, any kind of interesting style, should stay at the surface in a way, and it shouldn't be deep. And anything that is on the surface, like if you put something on the surface, it can roll off. It can get lost or whatever. It can change and be moved you can move it into a different lighting or something like that. exactly yeah and so when things are on the surface it's necessarily temporary and it's constantly shifting yeah, yeah. and you can lose it um like you lost your keys earlier yeah exactly <laughs> yeah um but if your style is like deeply embedded if you're like constantly burrowing down then i guess it's going to be more fixed and more kind of sturdy but it's not really going to go anywhere um so it should be so surfaces are actually deeper than depth, right. but things have to be kind of transformed into depth for culture writers to write about them or for like douchebags to talk about them. They have to act like these things are so deep and profound, like, oh, you can't understand them or whatever. Right, right. But the art should maker. be. Right. The so tastemaker does that. Tastemakers need art to be deep. So that you it's know, the whole history of the post punk movement or whatever the fuck, you right? About. Yeah, uh, I think I'm good for now, but yeah, might as well get one. Okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so culture writers and tastemakers need art to be kind of profound and deep to justify their position and to act as gatekeepers and so on, right. but art should be, you know, um. For the masses, it should be for everyone. You shouldn't have to have any kind of real context or, like, a, an advanced degree or, like, you shouldn't have to have right. read some special book or whatever to appreciate art. Um, it should be on the surface. And surfaces are threatening, I think, to power. Because if everything's on the surface and everything's exposed... And so this is why I think the bourgeois mind, tastemakers, whatever, they like the idea of depth so much because... Things aren't exposed. Things are hidden. You have to dig for it. And so right. you're wasting all this time and energy totally. digging for meaning underneath in this subterranean way. But then you get to the bottom and you realize there's no bottom or there's nothing there or whatever. Um, and so, so the it's, surface is all along. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and so if you start digging, then you've already lost, basically. Um, because you can never dig deep enough. Right, exactly. And this is the cool thing about... So don't dig at all. Yeah. And this is what's amazing about performance work and working with the live situation is because there's no artifact after, mm. you you kind of get rid of a lot of those issues of like, 
Yeah. Well, you know, we can go to look the museum and look at that painting. Fetishizing it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But Turn it into an object. If there's mm-hmm. nothing there, when right. it's all said and done, you know, of course, there's like the video of the thing or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, but... But the real thing itself is just like the night that it's being performed. Yeah, and then it's gone, it's done. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of an, an aura. It's this yeah. intense aura, and you can really feel it that night and for like for a few days after, but then it fades... And it has to be used for something else, incorporated in some other way. Right, sure. Sort of. um, Same thing with, like, you know, the music is oral, obviously. <laughs> oral. oral. <laughs> Good one, Beavis. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you know, yeah. yes, there's the recording of the thing, but it's a transitional form, you know. it's mm-hmm. It never actually really exists outside of itself and that moment dance too that's what really attracts me to those things as opposed to painting i mean i really i've I've been making more paintings but i only make them because that's how i make money yeah but i really painting is something like <laughs> it takes effort and like you have to, like i don't know it doesn't come out of you as organically, I guess. Like, it's kind of like a pain. Pain thing. Like, the word pain is in it. Actually, it does. <laughs> it actually is really easy. Oh, really? Okay. That's why I hate it. Because it's just like, oh, huh. oh, look at it. Pretty colors. Oh, a fucking, another fucking image of my fucking stupid hand. Um, yeah. Sell it for a thousand dollars and whatever, whatever some sucker will pay for it. It seems like it's hard. <laughs> it seems like it's hard for you to take yourself out of painting to some extent. Yeah. Where, like, with other stuff you do, you're not, like, in it at all. It's more about other things. Yeah, it's more experimental. Yeah. But for some reason, with painting, it's more, like, identity-based or, like, personal in some yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, sure. And you don't like that. No, I hate because it. Because that's bad art. Right. Yeah. Getting back to the thing about how good art should, like, be sort of temporary and fleeting. I think anything good moves fast and it's gone, like, before you even know it. That's why I like the Minutemen so much. Their right, songs sure. were like 80 seconds. Yeah. Like the best, like Double Nickels on the Dime, one of my favorite albums That's ever. Amazing record, yeah. And most of the songs are super short. Um, and not every song is great, but the best parts on that are amazing, but they all pass so quick. Um, but that doesn't make it any like less good. I, I think that's what makes it good. Right. And sure. if, And so, you know, I think that's the essence of good art. And so it's very surface. And so the best parts of that kind of music are they feel kind of like incidental or like you know um like this discovery that is just sort of happening in kind of like this unconscious way it just sort of comes out naturally and it's not like intentionalized and you discover that you love it and then it's gone immediately right but that's what makes it good yeah but that's also i don't know a sort of painful thing about life that the best things are super temporary. Yeah, um, everything's changing constantly all the time. Nothing is ever settled. But uh, that's an incredibly painful thing to experience constantly. Yeah. And so I think uh, like the bourgeois approach to art is to want art to be like an antidote to that because life does pass, like the good things in life are so temporary and fleeting and pass by so quickly that the bourgeois mind wants art to kind of be the opposite of that. It should, like, make good things permanent, and it should be this very deep, profound thing. It should be something that we can, like, I don't know, use to make ourselves feel better 
uh, something we can return to and lose ourselves in. Yeah, lose your lose oneself in. That's yeah. A big one. Well, let's not critique Eminem here, because oh, he right. says lose yourself in the music. But I guess I don't know. Uh, I guess he's talking about a flow state, though. Right. So he's losing himself. Yeah. He's. It's more about himself being in the midst of a process. Which is important because you do sh- you should lose yourself in all right. of your you know, so that's like an anti identity anti bourgeois statement that right. Marshall right. Mathers is getting at here yeah right okay. it's not Good. the same as like oh I went to the theater to go see the King and I or whatever the fuck people see in the theater right. and I really just like I was able to escape my woes for the evening that's yeah. some fucking bourgeois shit right that's not what art is for no art should create it should introduce you to new woes. Yeah. I think. New, should, new ways to be sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New, new ways to be sad. New types new of things sorrow. to fill you with dread. Yeah. Things of right. this nature. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful thing, is finding new ways to be miserable. Because you're going to be miserable all the time. That's pretty much all life is. Yeah. But we get into these ruts of being miserable in the same way, kind of. Right. So I think all we can do is expand our misery or, like, diversify our misery. And I think that's one of the interesting things that art can do. Right. It's It shouldn't be... Um, there's another kind of prevalent like aesthetic right now of... Um, I've talked shit about it pretty relentlessly everywhere. <laughs> um, but this kind of like, the party and, and joy, you know. Art should be about joy. Art is about... You mm. know, Come to my show and we're gonna experience like joy and happiness together. Who says that? Um, a lot you have friends of, like this? I don't have any friends like this. You don't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like a thing. It's like a celebration, this kind of like hedonism of... Uh, right, yeah. And, well, it's everywhere, not even just in art. It's also in, you know, contemporary feminism, you know, contemporary racial politics that are like, I'm a, I'm a queen, like, I'm a goddess queen, this kind of thing. Right. Or, you know, contemporary feminism, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna chase my bag and be a bad bitch. It's the same kind of idea of, yeah. like... Even, like, tech culture, too, I feel like, is yeah. kind of like that. Like, we're making the world a better place, we're, you know, um, it's, like, positive, like, using tech and entrepreneurship to be positive. I think you see the yes. same kind of tendencies with, like, the racial stuff or feminist stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. It's all reactionary bourgeois it's coming nonsense. from the hippie shit too it's right definitely everything bad comes from hippies shit. and boomers yeah. yeah yeah and but that's a another kind of artistic mode that is really popular right now that i don't know it just feels like um it doesn't even feel like art you know it feels like this kind of distraction from life which is again what people are really into the bourgeois mind is really into that right so there is this idea that art should be a distraction from life because life is bad so we need art to take us away from that but that's not art that's entertainment yes exactly. that's non-art entertainment is what distracts you from life right art should remind you of life it should make you encounter life as it actually is right right through abstraction and through these kind of right. other modes because you know, uh, reality is incredibly complex. So mm-hmm. we know it sucks. We're suffering. So, and that's kind of the given. That's common sense. 
but then you have art that kind of abstracts it and kind of alienates you through these abstractions and then you become more aware of like the empirical reality of your suffering or something like this right maybe if it's good right yeah and so art should not um distract us from life it should present us with life but so that kind of sounds like socialist realism yeah, sure. So in the Soviet Union, their main aesthetic mode was socialist realism, where it just sort of like straightforwardly depicted like the proletarian experience or like yeah. the generic worker as this like pure kind of form or whatever. Right. So it's just kind of like reflecting life as it is back to people. Right. But I don't like... Like just this sort of mirror. I don't like that either because yeah. it's too... Sort of, it's too literal. It's too literal. Yeah. You have to go through these alternative routes mm-hmm. to get people to uh, see kind of what is actually taking place. Mm-hmm. If it's too obvious that it's just a reproduction of what already exists, like why even do it? Right. If you're just like, I'm going to paint a picture of this fucking worker. I don't like socialist realism. Because you hate workers. Yeah, I'm anti-worker. <laughs> I'm the most anti-worker leftist. So. Mm. But I just don't like that, you know, oh, okay, we're just going to paint all of these pictures of workers doing what they do, and they're going to be, like, photorealistic. What the fuck is the point of even doing it, then? I don't know, to kind of comfort workers or empower them, sort of? So it's kind of like the mirror, it's it's kind of like the flip side of, like, (laughs) bourgeois art, like, liberal bourgeois art that we have here. Like, HBO, all of their shit is, Representation of the oppressed you know, masses, or once oppressed masses, whatever. Yeah, so they have, like, shows about black people being oppressed, and we're supposed to be sad about it, and that's supposed to be empowering to them, or whatever. Um, But there's also, like, a big thing with HBO, and that's sort of just, like, the, I don't know, main example of, like, mainstream, high-end, liberal bourgeois art, um, where it's, like, showing, it's, like, representing the ugliness of the bourgeoisie, to themselves, because I think most people who watch HBO, who have HBO subscriptions, are, you know, wealthy bourgeois people, although not, not everyone. Um, and so a lot of their shows are just, like, reveling in the ugliness of the bourgeois class, and, like, it's supposed to be a critique of them, I guess, because, like, oh, look how horrible they are, but it always makes them seem, like, funny and sexy and successful and whatever. So it's ultimately, like, empowering the bourgeoisie by kind of so it's kind of like bourgeois realism right sure. you know like hbo shows hulu shows sure, netflix sure. whatever um so in the same way that i think socialist realism is i don't know just kind of like reflecting the proletariat back to themselves and so it, it it's i guess like a mechanical materialism yeah this idea that like if we just represent reality as it is then that will somehow carry history forward but there has to be this kind of negative dialectical element to it where you're not just reflecting the way things are back to people right there has to be this i don't know critique there has to be this negative element and that is what can drive history forward in a way right. and so this is where nothingness and void comes into art sure exactly. um, but the bourgeoisie can use nothingness in their art in kind of a shitty not dialectical yeah. mechanical way yeah. Such as John Cage. Yeah, exactly. So how does John Cage use nothingness in a bad way? Well, John Cage says, you know, uh, 
the the silence is already pregnant with everything that you Mm. already need. So it's like, it's nothingness, but it's a full nothingness. Right. That is already perfect as it is. It's kind of like this ready-made. Like lose yourself in the nothingness. Nothingness can be this home, this cozy kind of thing. Yeah, it's like, uh, uh, you know. But nothingness should be strange. It should be terrifying. Terrifying. and it, yeah. yeah. So he makes nothingness into something familiar and something like that's a home for us. Right. He fills it with ideology, bourgeois ideology. Right. Which is that, uh, you know, if you only were to listen harder to the nothingness. Mm, the answer is there. You would, you would yeah. understand that everything is already just exactly how it should be. Right. And then, you know, your internal life will become better or whatever. Right. It's very like uh, this kind of new agey self-help yeah. type. And so it's nothingness that makes you feel better and it, like, empowers you. But that's right. not what nothingness should do. Nothingness should make you feel like shit. Yeah. <laughs> but in a good way. Right. Or make you uh, pay more attention or something like this. Whereas yeah. his is very much about, like, not doing that. It's like, uh, his is like, uh, you know, just be quiet and let the world speak, you know, or something like this. Yeah, and so it's like a peaceful nothingness. Yeah. It's but nothingness should be thing. not peaceful. It should be, I don't know, terrifying, chaotic, war like Anything warlike. can emerge from it. Yeah. The void, right, the void is pure chaos, pure (laughs) chance, you know, you can have any kind of encounter within the void. The void is what makes all kinds of encounters possible, but with John Cage or bourgeois nothingness, nothing, like, it's this clearing where, like, nothing can happen within the nothingness. Right. But nothing, but everything should be able to happen within the nothingness. Right, right, I realize you sound like crazy Heideggerian. No, yeah, no, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it makes sense. Um. Yeah, and it's like a an affirmation. It's like a negative affirmation. This is funny. Of of like, you know the. Uh, I think the proper use of the void would be to be like open to its affirming its possibilities, affirming its potentialities, but not saying that. Uh, Everything that is already existing is perfect as it is, which is exactly what John Cage is saying. I mean, he pretty much explicitly says that. He says that nothing contains everything. Yeah. And so we don't have to change anything. Exactly. So it's showing how nothingness is compatible with the status quo, I guess. Mm -hmm. But nothingness should challenge the status quo. Nothingness should drive history forward. Right. But he uses nothingness to kind of lock, to kind of have this static effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So nothingness should Chain be dynamic. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so that's what you try to do with your art, I guess. Yeah, yeah. sure. And it, could, and it can be dangerous. It can, like, blow up in your face, I guess, um, if you're, I don't know, experiments in nothingness. Trying to discover things within nothingness. Yeah, to start, to begin with the void. Yeah. Because it's much easier, a friend of mine that, a good example of this, a friend of mine that I've been working with, he's uh, doing a number of projects, and 
some of the projects that he's doing, it, it, it couldn't be more opposite from what we're working on because mm -hmm. they, they start with um, a whole kind of framework for exactly what the work is. This is how it begins, this is how it ends, uh, and this is what it all means. And uh, I hate that way of working. I think it's wrong. People are like, no, it's just more, there's more than one way to make work. And I'm like, yeah, but some ways are wrong and that way is wrong. Right. And so that's a pretty different approach to art that you have than most people have. I feel like, yeah. I feel like with art, art making, there's sort of this idea that like anything goes, everything's correct. Whatever you feel, whatever you want to express is correct. And so if art is reduced to expressionism, then you can't be wrong. Because right. whatever you feel and you express is valid. Right, but it's not. It's not, yeah. Some of you shouldn't be making art. <laughs> yeah, un until not you... Not everyone's shit is valid. No. But, um, you know, a lot of the things... The process that I think is incorrect is this kind of mechanical one mm -hmm. that a lot of people are really obsessed with right now. Especially, like, with identity and representation, you know. Um, we have to, like, express, you know... Uh, women have to work within these kind of forms to kind of express what it means to be a woman. Mm. All of this type of shit. Um, but what I want to get at is that you should start with nothingness. You should start with the void. Yeah. And then see what appears and emerges from, from the void. Right. So you have to like build structures that surround the void in which so that it has like a shape a lattice work in yeah. which it can express itself because if like it's that. too open then you get nowhere. Then you get nowhere. Yeah. So start from nothingness and from nowhere, then you can get somewhere. Yeah. But if you're starting from what you said earlier like what does it mean to be a woman? Like that's a question mm -hmm. that art that's some kind of shitty liberal bourgeois feminist right. art uh, starts with, like, that leads, it's, that leads nowhere, because it's a question that has no real answer, because, like, what does it mean to be a woman? There's a million answers, so if there's a million answers, there's no answers. Right, and it's just, like, what an uninteresting question. It's too open-ended. I think we already know what it means. I mean, you know, wh why are these the questions that we're asking? They're fucking boring, and they make for just a, another reproduction of what we already know. Yeah. We, we just don't need it. Right. Yeah, and I think, <laughs> you know, we had so much art for so long that was, ans like, answering the question or trying to answer the question, what does it mean to be a man? And now we're seeing the flip side of that. It's art's dominated by what does it mean to be a woman? And it's just as stupid. Like, there's right. this idea that it's better because it's it's her turn. It's women's turn to have, you know, to pursue these questions about, you know, identity from their perspective but it's just as stupid yeah, you know like why don't we pursue some new questions or ask bigger questions and that's part of the problem too is that or ask no questions no <laughs> i'm all about the que questions are the way in not ask no questions but ask i don't know questions from the perspective of the void sure try to i don't know see what the void would say if it could speak sure perhaps yeah sure or to be like you know what does it mean to be nothing Rather than what does it mean to be a woman? Right, exactly. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, 
some of the questions that I'm asking right now are just like massive questions that I know can't be answered, but they just get you a way in into the void. So like, mm. and then once the, you're in the void, then anything's possible. Exactly. Then it kind of can just open up and do whatever yeah. it does. But you have to have these kind of ways in. You have to get in. You have to enter the void. Yeah. And that's usually through these questions. But if your answer, if your question is, what does it mean to be a woman? Then you automatically fill the void with all of these stories about yourself and trauma and, right. you know, X, Y, and Z. And, and that becomes another void, but a bad void. That becomes the void or the pit of identity and of the self. And you right, lose yourself right, right, in that right. or the soul or whatever. And so that's this, like, shadow that has no bottom to it and has no real answer. Um, and so that's the bad kind of void. So we want the good kind of void. Right. So that's a tough distinction for people to understand. Right. Exactly. You know, anything that burrows you down deeper in ideas about yourself is generally going to be boring and... Yeah. Art should have lightness to it. It should have a light touch. It shouldn't necessarily be heavy or have this gravity or this depth or be profound or anything like that. Right. And that's, I think, different from how a lot of people feel about art. Um... So this is why, again, you like uh, Brecht so much. So, as we were talking about earlier, um, Walter Benjamin, I know it's Benjamin, but I say Benjamin because I'm American yeah. and I'm retarded. Um, <laughs> uh, Benjamin and Brecht were talking. Um, and so Benjamin stressed the function of his extremely light and certain touch and suggested that affinities existed between his plays and the ancient Chinese board game of Go, with its, in, with its initially empty board and its strategy of placing, mm. rather than moving, pieces. You place, so this is a quote from Benjamin, you place each of your figures and formulations on the right spot once they fulfill their proper strategic function on their own and without having to act. And so you relate to this and what you're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. sure. Um, and so it's light but certain and that seems like kind of a contradiction because if something's light we think that it's surface and that there's not a lot of thought that goes into it it's superficial right but superficial superficiality can be deep and it can have a lot of certainty in it and that you're being superficial on purpose right Sure. And for kind of strategic reasons. And so then he gets into talking about uh, comparing Brecht's artistic style to the game of Go. Um, where, you know, you're placing things in a certain spot and they kind of have their own momentum, their own function without having to act. So just putting things in the right place. Right. Basically. And so you don't have to burrow down too much. You just have to put pieces where you think they should go or where it would be interesting to have them be and then kind of see what they do. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's more scientific than it is... Uh, yeah. ...than it is this uh, kind of romantic or, like, bleeding heart way of thinking about what the way that a work should be made. Right. Like, uh, oh, you know, I... Um, this character means this, and uh, over the course of the play, you know, uh, we have to have some kind of sympathy with them, and then that'll build the depth with that character, with the audience, and Mm. then the audience will leave, 
and it will stay with them forever until, you know, this kind of way yeah. of thinking about it. Brecht is not really like that. Right. His characters are kind of these, like, husks for ideas to live inside of. Mm-hmm. And he just places there. Yeah. Concepts. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's also why, like, the way his actors would act was, it wasn't about, like, necessarily the craft of, like, good acting. Because that wasn't what, like, interested Brecht as a director and as a writer. They were just there to, like, express these ideas. Right. As opposed to, like, a method actor that's like, you have to see that person, like, Daniel Day-Lewis or whoever the fuck. And they're so real. Mm. You know? He becomes the person. He makes it his own. And it's so deep. It's like, you can, that character looks lived in, is what people say. You know, this kind of thing. That's a very, like, anti-Brechtian way of thinking about what the stage is and how it works. Yeah. Because to him, to Brecht, it was just like, you know, the characters are an idea, they express... Uh, They're pieces of, on a game board. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So like a piece on a game board should not be lived in. Right. It should not be something you identify with even. Like exactly. why would you identify with, with a piece like on a game of Go or something? Right. Like you're not looking at the pieces on a Go board and being like, oh yeah, that's me. Yeah, wow, I really get that guy. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how Go works, but I, right. I assume that would be absurd. It's, it's just like little rocks or something. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like... There's like thousands and thousands of potential things that can happen. Yeah. And so nothing's that important if there are all of these potential things that can happen. So like anything can happen. Right. And so a lot of like heavy bourgeois art, it's like, oh, it has to be this. Right, it has right. to be that. And it's very controlled. Here's the beginning and here's the end and it has right. to Right. It's super controlled. Yeah. And so it shouldn't be. And so it should be, as you were saying, scientific in a certain way. And with science, like, you don't know what's going to happen. And that's what makes it interesting. You can have discoveries. Right. It's experimental. Yeah. It must be. Because if you don't have experiments, you don't have science. Yeah. And so this, there's a lot of talk about experimental art, but it's usually not thought of in terms of, like, scientific ex- experimentalism. No. It's usually, like, experimental art. It's like, oh, it's abstract, it's expressive, it's anything goes, it's, you know, it's too, childish. It's, it's indulgent. It's too open, sort of. Yeah, and it's indulgent. Yeah. Uh, and science isn't open. It's very strict and limited, right. but that's how you can do experimentation in interesting ways and find things. Yeah, you have to build these kind of parameters around what you're working with these limitations Mm -hmm. to kind of give the void form yeah to give it some kind of shape so it's not just too open right um and then the the kind of uh the boundaries that you give it and the kind of rules that you set into place like you would in a scientific experiment that those rules, uh, the way that they interface with all of these potentialities is what makes the art interesting. Mm-hmm. It has to have some kind of tension in it. If it's too open, then it's nothing. Literally, like, you just have, what, like, children right. playing, and it seems, like, childish. It's not so like... The void a... can't be too open. It has to be a closed void. Yeah. Which is kind of a strange idea. <laughs> How it has to be. Yeah. You have to, like, build these, uh... You can't come into my void. Yeah, or or rather... You have to earn your way into the void. Or rather, you can't just use the void all willy-nilly like it's 
Right. The like void is not a, a toy. Yeah. Like you're a fucking baby. Like, where's my binky? Right. You know. Yeah. So a lot of experimental art is kind of babyish. Binky time. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Should not be binky time. It should not be binky time. Yeah. It should be fascist. It should be like challenging for the artist too. I mean. This is something that I've been dealing with in making these new works that I'm making is I can sense, I can intuitively feel when it gets too into baby land (laughs) and I can see it happening in front of me. I'm like, oh my God, they're all just enjoying themselves. Right. Everyone who's doing this work is just enjoying themselves (laughs) and being like, wow, you know, oh my God, I'm free to do what I want. No. I'm like, you're definitely not free. I mean, let go of that idea. Yeah, they're expressing themselves too much. It's indulgent. Right. Yeah, like like they babies. should never be expressing themselves. No, and you're not expressing yourself either. No, no way. So what is being expressed? Nothing. But that's what makes it interesting. Yeah, nothing is being expressed. What makes it interesting is these kind of scientific ruptures that happen that could not be predicted. Mm-hmm. Right. And then something new can appear. Yeah, and something terrifying and something horrible. Yeah, yeah. You know, like Einstein, he didn't know that his equations were going to lead to the atom bomb. Right. But you can make a direct line from his discoveries in 1905 to dropping the atom bomb on, you know, Japan 40 years later. Right. He didn't know that was going to happen. But, you know, I guess it's still good (laughs) good that he discovered it. Right. Even though it led to terrifying things. But it's just the, the, when you... Art should be terrifying. Yes. In the best... And there should be risks, and people people should die. Yeah, many... <laughs> if your art kills someone, that's good art, right. I would say. You've, you did your job. Yeah. So, like, Goethe, uh, the German Shakes, German version of Shakespeare, his, I think one of his earliest novels, The Sorrows of Young Werther, mm-hmm. um, about this super depressed young man, basically like the first incel novel. Okay. Um, you heard of it? Uh, I, yeah, I think I was... Never, I'm not going to say what I was going to say. Say it. No. I have heard of it. I've never seen you censor yourself before. Um, But anyway, I just bring it up because (laughs) lots of people kill themselves after reading that book. Um, And so that's, I think, what makes it good art because it was fucking deadly. (laughs) It was dangerous. And so he had to come out and make this statement, like, don't follow my uh, ideas or my perspective or my art. Like, follow your own. So, like, the guy in the novel was very depressed and suicidal. And so people who read it, sort of took that on themselves. They identified with it too much. Right. Um, and he was... So maybe it was bad art in that sense that, like, people identified with the character too much and they wanted to die because the character made them want to die and the character wanted to die. Um, so, yeah, your art... You shouldn't make characters that people identify with too much, almost. Yeah. Know. Right. I mean, this is Breck's whole thing. I think I've said this. I, I talk about this one all the time. Mm. It's another one of my favorite stories, but... When Mother Courage first premiered, people were identifying with her, mm. like on an interpersonal level, and he was so upset with that. That's totally me. Like, I'm I'm such a Mother Courage. And they were like, "Oh my god!" It's you like know, when liberal totally women watch Sex in the City. Like I'm a Miranda. Oh god. I'm a Samantha. Oh. I, <laughs> I'm a Mother Courage. Yeah, exactly, oh. exactly. Horrible. Correct is like. She's awful. She's supposed to represent, like, the most, uh, you know, despicable aspects of, like, you know, 
human beings under these conditions. You're mm-hmm. not supposed to sympathize with her. You're supposed to be disgusted by her and kind right. of alienated by her presence. Right. You shouldn't find yourself in her. Yeah. You should all this empathy thing. Yeah. And so I think the same is probably the case with uh, the stars of Young Werther. Like, you should be disgusted by him. Right. Like, this pathetic man. You, you shouldn't be like, oh, that's me. Right. You know. Or if you do feel like that, that should make you reconsider your shit and like why do I identify with this pathetic person sure you know so it shouldn't it should make you like reconsider your alienation rather than like doubling down on your alienation right. and like delving more Often into yourself. it yeah right. right okay so maybe that's not good art if it makes you kill yourself <laughs> well I mean like do you want people to die from your art you want people to die in general <laughs> like if, if your art um, does it if not doesn't matter I don't know if someone <laughs> died from my art I would probably just be like uh, I'd feel like whatever about it <laughs> <laughs> you'd probably be pretty proud I don't know that'd be pretty, <laughs> pretty yeah cool. I, I would be yeah it would lead to some emotional conflict. Mm-hmm. For like five minutes. Yeah, and then I'd be like, what's next? <laughs> On to the next thing, yeah. All right, I have to, I have to pee really quick. So okay, let's pause it. Pee break, folks. So, moving on from the theory of art to current events, the Met Gala was, I guess last week, I don't know, mm-hmm. I'm losing track of time. Um, because, is, yeah, we're all dying soon, so who knows what time it is or anything. on the edge of death. Yeah, it's just death o'clock. That's the only... <laughs> <laughs> and what day is it? It's death day. It's death it's day. death Tember on death's door. Death <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so, I think everyone's talked enough about uh, AOC's text, Rich Dress, and so on, and how that's, you know... Typical, like, social democrat, bourgeois feminism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it came out that, like, the designer of that dress, uh, her company, like, owes lots in tax money. Yeah, and her husband owes, like, billions of dollars. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Of course. Like, no one's surprised by this. It's AOC. Everything that she does is total bullshit. Yeah, she's a... Yeah. A, A net negative for any kind of, I don't know, revolutionary subjectivity. Yeah. In general. Um, they definitely made her in a lab to fuck with everyone's... She's yeah. a psyop. She's a psyop. She's a good-looking psyop, though. Yeah. You know. She's a good-looking psyop. Yeah. That's, exa- that's part of... Yeah, I think so, yeah. It's not an accident. Um, but somewhat overlooked was Cara Delevingne, who's a British actress, model. She can't really act or model, though. Yeah, she's the great-granddaughter of the second-in-command of the Black and Tans. Mm-hmm. Which were basically the SS, the the UK's version of the SS in Ireland. Ugh. British Nazis. British Nazis. The only thing worse than Nazis are British Nazis. Yeah, I mean... British people are the worst people in the world. Yeah, inbred, eating fucking beans or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right, at least the real Nazis were eating, like, schnitzel and sausage and yeah. drinking good beer and whatever. Right. The British Nazis were just eating fucking and shitty beans. beans. Not even good toast. beans. Yeah, just <laughs> beans on toast. I'm sure some of my friends would be like, oh, that actually sounds pretty good, but no. That's, that's not what good. you eat when you're... <laughs> when you have nothing to live for. 
Yeah. And so she <laughs> wore a dress that said, Peg the Patriarchy. Ugh, I hate this. And then she, I guess, was asked about what that meant. And she was like, you're going to have to look it up if you don't know what pegging means. I don't know what she sounds like. Yeah. That's sort of an Irish man's accent. I don't know. <laughs> that was, you know. Um, yeah. And so it's like, oh, I'm so radical. I want to peg the patriarchy. Um, and so it's just like typical radical feminist kind of thing. Um, liberal, liberal feminist. Liberal feminism. Right. Um, and so what, what is pegging? I, I don't really, it's like if you fuck a guy in the ass with a dildo yeah, or something. Pegging is basically. when you strap one on and you ram it up. Okay. Yeah. You <laughs> sound like you've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ty's going to be pegging me after, <laughs> after the podcast because I'm the patriarch. Strap one up, strap one on, <laughs> ram it up. Mm-hmm. What, why pegging? Like, why not just call it, I don't know. Anally raping a man. I guess it doesn't really have to go off the tongue. <laughs> Anal rape the patriarch. That's what the shirt should have said. Yeah, there, there wasn't enough space on the shirt to fit all that. Um, yeah, and so I think it's interesting because, you know, she's very wealthy. She's the... She has this... Of a genocidal war... Or a granddaughter... Great-granddaughter of a genocidal war criminal. Right. She has this fake job of being a model where she just yeah. does nothing and she makes lots of money, whatever. Um... And she gets to posture as this, like, radical, revolutionary figure because she thinks that women should fuck men in the ass and that will get some kind of social right. change. Yeah. If enough I mean, women fuck men in the ass with dildos, which I guess is what pegging is, <laughs> then we get socialism. Right. Or something. I mean, there's right? a number of things or wrong with justice. This. I don't know. One, men have been taking, straight men have been taking it up the ass a long time. <laughs> Still... It hasn't changed much. I don't yeah. know. Maybe not enough men have been getting fucked in the ass. We need to reach like a critical mass <laughs> of ass. Of if we just, dick if we and just ass. fucking penetrate enough, we'll win. Yeah. And if everyone does it at the same time, it'll have like this collective if, effect. If all the if all the men get pugged out pegged pugged. at once. <laughs> <laughs> if all the straight men get pegged at once, mm. patriarchy will fall for once and for all. I think that's how it works. Yeah. I think she's right. <laughs> yeah. You just got to line up every man in the world and get every woman in the world behind him with a with a dick strapped on. And if they all fuck him at the same time, then patriarchy over. And then we get feminist utopia. And it'll be led by people like Carrie Delevingne, who are descended from British Nazis. Or criminals. Yeah. And once they're in charge, then things will be good. Right. So we need to replace the genocidal <laughs> patriarchy with a genocidal matriarchy. Yeah. Basically. Um, Which is obviously fucking... People still don't get the... It's just the same kind of... It's sex as domination. It's penetration as domination. It's mm-hmm. literally just rape culture. But the good kind. Yeah. And it's like, I, you know, leave it to this fucking particular person who is the great-granddaughter of a black and tans commander. I didn't know that. It's not yeah. talked about in the news at all. Yeah, it's kind of buried. I, it's weird, like, what gets covered and what doesn't. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these overnight kind so usually, of British pop sensa- popular sensations yeah. are descendants of these, like, horrific war criminals. Mm, yeah. It's even more nepotistic than America. Britain, yeah, because it's super tiny. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, and it's weird that her connection to British Nazis, basically, um, isn't more well-known, because usually, especially nowadays, any kind of bad thing in your past what's in the, whatsoever that can be connected with you is usually, like, made a huge right. story. But with her, nobody hears about it. Like, you're the only person that I know who talks about yeah. that. Um, and sure. so, yeah, I think this summarizes the problem with liberal feminism in yeah. a really striking way. Because it's, it's not taking issue with the fundamental kind of contradiction between women and men. It's just saying that women need to be more like men. Or, like, women need to... They need to literally have dicks. Yeah, it's like the yeah. most obvious. Like, <laughs> it could not. So it's anti-feminism. Yeah, it could not yeah. be any more obviously wrong. Right. If you fucking tried, but then okay, so that this is one layer of it, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's an added layer where the, there was like a queer moment with it, where people were like, um, actually, it was a non-binary woman who made up the, or not non-binary woman. You just fucked up. You're canceled. Fuck, I did a fucking hate crime. Live, yeah, that, that was live hate really, crime. dude. It's problematic. Um, there's a non-binary person who was actually the first person to say "peg the patriarchy." Mm. Kara Delavine stole it, and that's the fun- fundamental problem that they saw. All about you know, uh, right. like um, intellectual property. It's very capitalistic. It's so funny how they out. always do that. Yeah. It's, it's like clockwork. It's like, okay, some white liberal feminist, genocidal war criminal feminist says something stupid, and then some, like, weird queer theorist is like, actually, I did it first. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, you're not getting... So my shitty reactionary idea that isn't really good feminism at all, you stole it from me. Yeah. I did it first. That's the problem. Yeah. Right. Is that you're not giving me credit for my ownership of this horrible idea. Right. But it's not the idea that's wrong. It's that you're not respecting my property rights. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, it was just like a perfect, like, yeah. the kind of chain of the way that all, that all unfolded was really funny. Because it mm-hmm. kind of just got to the heart of, like, everything that's wrong with, like, gender theory and this kind of fucking shit. Which is that it doesn't pose any kind of threat to capitalism whatsoever it's totally consistent with everything you don't think judith butler is a revolutionary who the bourgeoisie is terrified of you know i actually have never given her a fair shake i don't really know what's good with judith butler but from the amount of vitriol she gets from people that i respect i think that they're probably right yeah just say you hate her that's what i was looking for (laughs) what does she say about stuff oh i don't know i haven't i certainly haven't read her um but she's just, like, an example of, like, the main gender theorist. And, yeah, I don't know if um, her ideas are really challenging to capitalism because, you know, she's had a privileged position in liberal academia for decades and decades. And they're not going to give those positions to people who are, like, threatening the system in a fundamental way, I right. wouldn't say. So, yeah, I, I would be distrustful of all of those people. I don't know. Right. Yeah. The only academics you can trust are shitty adjuncts like me who, right. you know, have no protection and are always on the verge of losing their fucking jobs for, you know, being a little Hitlery on Hitler. <laughs> being a dialectical Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dialectical Hitlerism is not a crime, okay? Yeah, dialectical Hitler. <laughs> if you 
future, baby. Yeah, it's Come dialectical. On. So it's not just normal Hitlerism. Such that would be bad. Yeah, such it's a straight up Hitlerism. No, I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be problematic. And that's not something that I would ever do. Not ever. Um, yeah, so that was funny. And she sucks. And yeah. yeah um, Feminism is in a bad place. Yeah, but you're going to change that, right? You're going to make it good again? Make feminism yeah. great again? Make feminism great again. Tylee? Tylee 2024. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I would make a great president. Maybe you should run for president of, Philipp- of the Philippines with... Manny Pacquiao. Manny Pacquiao. You can be That's his vice right. president? Yeah. Mm. I think that would be a great thing. I would love that. I would do so good. <laughs> <laughs> I would do so good at vice president. <laughs> I'm sure Manny Pacquiao would come into your office one day and be like, Ty, you're doing so good. Oh, <laughs> you're doing so you. fucking good. Thank You've you. killed thousands of people. Keep it up. <laughs> so many dead children. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Your numbers. Mm. Your numbers are <laughs> Seems like that's most of what Filipino politics is about, is just killing masses of people. Like, that's all Duterte does. And I'm sure if Manny Pacquiao is president, it's going to be yeah, the same thing. But he'll kill different people, I guess. Like, that's politics there it's just like who gets killed yeah i don't know duterte is killing the wrong people i guess right so we have to kill the right people yeah manny pacquiao needs to kill the like comprador bourgeoisie he kind of is the comprador bourgeoisie mm. but, no. but he's doing a self-critique right yeah mm-hmm. it'll end with him like lighting himself on fire or, or no <laughs> it'll end with him crucifying himself like an insane catholic mm. there's there's yes. filipinos in certain areas of the Philippines that um, that crucify themselves on Easter. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Or not on Easter, because yeah. Jesus did his thing. <laughs> what was that? Before Easter. A couple of days before. The crucifixion? Yeah. Right. Yeah, Good Friday is when he dies. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So on Good Friday, they, they fucking hang themselves up on crosses. And they die? No, no, they almost die. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck is going on with the Philippines? Why are you people like that? Why are you so crazy and violent like, and insane? Very intense. What's going on it's down like a there? Very intense culture. Yeah. Can you guys relax a little bit? It's funny because there's a lot of like because we're colonized by Spain. There's a lot of like similarities between us and like other like Hispanic, I guess, cultures. But Filipinos are just that, but just, like, more intense and more insane. And, yeah. You know. So that's where you get it. Yeah. That's totally where <laughs> I get it. My land, my new landlord was, like, he saw my name and he was, like, oh, so you're Asian? And I was, like, yes. He's a Haitian guy. Haitians are fucking crazy, too. Hmm. So he was, like. So that's maybe how you got the apartment. Yeah. Sort. And he was, like. In New York, you gotta use everything you have to get an apartment. Exactly. Yeah. Fucking get me in there. Yeah. He was like, and I was like, yeah, I'm Filipino. And he was like, oh, crazy, crazy, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> like, like brother, he, you got no idea. And then he asked if I knew Kung Fu, which is really funny. Is that a Filipino thing? No. I didn't just think like, so. Yeah, he was like, do you know Kung Fu? And crazy, crazy, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say yes? You know Kung Fu? No. I should have. I should have lied. Yeah. He's yes. not going to like test you on it. <laughs> Okay, your final uh, thing before I give you this apartment. You have to defeat me in Kung Fu. It'd be funny if I kicked his ass. 
Yeah. He would probably like that, actually. Um, he loved it. Mm. All right. And so, as is well known about you, Ty, mm-hmm. big sports fan. Big sports fan. Big baseball, big baseball fan. Big right? baseball fan. Yeah. Los Doors. Let's go. Yeah. Um, so, how are your Dodgers doing? They're doing amazing. They're Defending gonna champs. A, they're going to win another ring. Mm. Um, the Giants are, you know, they are the most undialectical <laughs> fascist team in baseball. Interesting. Because um, they play small ball. They do. But that's good. No. Small ball is good. It has to be a blend. They're okay. not dynamic. They're not dynamic. They don't have any power hitters? They do, but it, they, they, they play, like, safe things. I don't know. Yeah. They're not, like, a very exciting team to watch. They're not experimental. No, they're definitely right. not experimental. Mm. Um, the Dodgers are the best. They are fun, yeah. You got me into watching them. We've watched them a bunch of times. Yeah, and I never would have like, paid them attention. Fucking, you got Mookie Betts. You got Max Muncy. You got Justin Turner. You got... Will Smith. I mean... The white Will Smith. The white Will Smith. <laughs> <laughs> you have the white Will Smith. You've got Chris Taylor. Name. But yeah. then, you have the daughter's dirty little... Dirty little boy. Uh-oh. Cody Bellinger. I thought you were going to say Trevor Bauer. Oh, fuck. He's well, damn. too dirty. He's been, um... He's been put out to pasture. Yeah. He's not playing the rest of the season or the... Good, fuck him. Yeah. Um, but Cody Bellinger, he is the dirty boy. Why is he? Why is he the dirty boy? <laughs> He's playing um, as if you took like a an infant and you just gave him a baseball bat and just put him out there. <laughs> He's just like yeah. He looks very confused. He looks confused. I think he's enthralled by the pussy. By the what? <laughs> pussy. By the what? He's enthralled by the pussy. Pussy, folks. Pussy. He's you got, tell me the pussy can ruin a man's life? He's got a baby on the way. Mm. And an injury. Yeah. And He was injured by pussy? He was he was injured by some dude he like, like broke his ankle him. and and some pussy. He was just like That happened to me once. This one <laughs> I was limping for weeks. Like this whole winter. Bad he pussy injury. Limping through the streets of Brooklyn. Yeah, I could barely make it up up the block. It was horrible. Jewish pussy that'll, that'll fuck you up. Oh. Is his wife Jewish? No, she's no. some she's some model, but hmm. um, yeah, they don't let Jews be models. No, no Jewish <laughs> models. Um, but yeah, he was an MVP two years ago. Most valuable penis. Now his penis ain't worth shit. Yeah, it's just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's um, deflated. Yeah, it's like a limp. That's the sound that his dick makes when he tries to come. It's just like... <laughs> it's like dust coming out. <laughs> like powdered milk. Yeah, he's coming powdered powdered milk. It's not good. Yeah. That's why he looks so sad. Because every time he tries to come, it's just... Pfft. Right. It's like, sad. Yeah, sad shit. Yeah. And it's really disgraceful. He has this <laughs> huge contract. And Dodgers fans, we want to win another ring. Yeah. Now, we're, we're not trying to sell out our boy Cody, but at the same time, it's like, what is this? It's pathetic. It's sad. We watched What's his batting average? 
like 180 like, or something i think like less. less than that it's crazy it's despicable shit yeah. hold on let me see this shit uh bellinger batting average it's like the laughing stock of uh bellinger batting average 159 holy shit 159 yeah that's terrible i can't believe that he's still playing yeah but yeah because... we watched the game together and remember, it was like, he was just so, oh my god, LA Dodgers put Cody Bellinger on the injured list due to rib fracture. That's bullshit, it's not a rib fracture, it's because, it's it's a pussy injury. It's because yeah. of pussy. He's on the injured uh, list due to pussy. Yeah, <laughs> and throw that pussy. Yeah, so his, his wife is just too hot, basically. I think but shouldn't that make him happy? I think it has something to do with it. Yeah. Plus the injury. But everyone gets injured in baseball all the time. Right? Sure, yeah. Isn't that kind of true? Like, I always thought that. Yeah. But you play through the injury. Right. He is somehow... He's a pretty boy. He's a bit of a pretty boy. He is. Yeah. Um, as am I. And so as, you know, pretty boys, it takes us a while to get over things. Right. Know, because, <laughs> because we're so beautiful. And when we get injured or scuffed up, it takes a while to, you know, get over it. Right. I guess. Right. Mm. Um, and he doesn't really fit on the Dodgers, because it's not a team of pretty boys. It's a team of, like, weird freaks. And that's why you like them, because you like weird freaks. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and Cody Bellinger should be on the bench right now. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is better than him. Well, he's not playing anymore. Yeah. So that's good. And I think that's a good move, and you guys are going to benefit from that. Yeah, it's kind of sad to see it all go down in such a way, though. Yeah, it's for the best. It is for the best. But it's like, you know, he was like the hometown hero for like a little while there. Yeah. And he just had this intense fall from grace. But he can have his uh, resurrection moment, which will be sweet for him. You think it's going to happen? I hope so. Because it would be nice to see him overcome this kind of adversity of sucking really badly one season. It would be a nice story. Um, but, you know, he's still got great pussy at home either way, so everything's going to work out for him regardless. You know, his, his, uh, I saw the, I guess this was about a month ago, I saw one Mets game with Ben, one with you, and mm-hmm. one with Adam, the bassist of Bodega. Yeah. And um, the game I saw with Adam, we had crazy good seats and did LSD. And that's when um, the Mets uh, lost to the Dodgers 14-4. to They right. got fucking whooped. But we were sitting like six feet from Cody Bellinger's family. Mm. His wife. No, no, no. The, like his um, parents. Oh, okay. And his mom. Yeah. His mom's probably hot. His mom's pretty hot. But she has that, like, baked-in-the-sun baseball mom, like, orange thing going on. You tell me orange isn't hot? You know, it's like, they look like... Orange is new black. It's like a, that that type of tan that looks like a 7-Eleven hot dog. Like Donald Trump? (laughs) (laughs) I would fuck Donald Trump. Would I fuck Donald Trump? Yeah, probably. Of course you would. It would be funny. You fucked worse than Donald Trump. Oh, man. <laughs> I've, def- I've, <laughs> I've fucked uh, the, uh, the, the bowels of man. 
Was that a pegging reference? You fucked male bowels? Yeah. Mm. Do you think... This is how we win. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is, what, this is what winning looks like. This is what winning looks like. Peg those bowels. Do you think... <laughs> Ugh, God, stop saying bowels. It's disgusting. I've heard someone say bowels so many times. Fucking weird little freak. <laughs> so do you think Cody Bellinger got pegged? And that's why he is all fucked up now? I think his I, wife is pegging him? Or I he think, hasn't been pegged enough? I think baseball is the most peg-centric sport. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Explain. You know all of them are fucking. All those dudes are fucking. Fucking each other? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think they're all gay? Or maybe not fucking each other, but they probably have, like... They've all had dicks in their ass? For sure. Yeah. Definitely like, Mookie like Betts. Hazing. Definitely Mookie Betts has had a dick in his ass. Oh! Max Muncy. Why do you say that? Because he's a former Red Sox player? No, because Fucking he just asshole? has this... He smiles too... <laughs> too much assurance. He smiles with too much assurance. <laughs> and that can only come from having had a dick Taking in your ass. Okay. Hmm. You know, Muncy... Muncy has a Maybe that's my problem. I haven't had enough dicks in my ass. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep going. Yeah. I've had a few, but I need more. Stay the course. Keep yeah. going. Just gotta keep working <laughs> through it. It's a little rough at first when you first start, but you gotta, you know, push through. Right. Mm-hmm. Just thrust through. Yes. Thrust Open those bowels up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. This is our, our baseball, our sports <laughs> roundup. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, baseball is homofascism. Yes, the most fascist sport. Yeah, and dialectical homofascism. The most <laughs> <laughs> dialectical homofascism. Okay. AKA baseball. Yes, and so why is baseball the most dialectical sport? Do you think? I agree that it is. Well, well you go first. <laughs> oh, on you. Well, shit. I was kind of hoping you would take this. <laughs> Why is baseball the most dialectical sport? Well, because it's all about angles and... Um, game of inches. Game of inches, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, like, small little subtleties. Right. And I, I think that's what dialectics is all about. It's, you know, Socrates, the inventor of dialectics, basically. And Hegel, too. Um, it's making a lot out of tiny little distinctions. And so a, an inch, a tiny little thing becomes massive. Right. That's sort of what dialectics is. The, the particular and the yeah, universal. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, You know. And I think baseball is, you know, the national pastime. Or it used to be. I don't know. And it used to be the most popular thing in the country. It united everyone. It was kind of this universalizing thing. Right. But it's a very weird, particularistic game. And it comes down to, you know, it's very local. And each team, each city has their own. Or they used to have their own kind of weird team and their ballparks used to be all weird. Like Fenway Park is very weird, you know. Um, different parks have different dimensions, and so it's all right, different. Sure. So it's universal, but it's also very particularistic and different. Right. So that's one way in which it's kind of dialectical. Um, and yeah, so it's fascist because it's super controlled and repetitive, and. evil <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. American like it's the yeah. most American thing it and America is a super American fascist thing. place and in the Ken Burns documentary about baseball which yeah. everyone should watch it's amazing mm. um, 
but it is a very fascist documentary because it's about baseball. But they, you know, the whole kind of historical progression of baseball is they wanted to make a game that was like specifically American, that was kind of away from its British identity, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. So it was rounders and cricket. Right. A blend of them. Um, but then they went on a tour to like tour baseball around the world. And every other country was like, what the fuck? Like, fuck this. Yeah. And then it became just like the only people that liked it were Americans. Right. And so it was very closed off. Yeah. Mm. And now. But that's what made it good, I think, because it was very closed off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I guess it's dialectical in that way, too, is that it takes from. It takes these foreign elements, but it situates them within this closed off perspective. Sure. And so it's using, you know, things from outside, but internalizing them and making it into. and synthesizing it into some new thing. Right. But that new thing is. And so it's universal, but only within. America. Right. Only within closed borders. Yeah. Mm. Within America and Japan, the two most fascist places in the world. Right. Yeah. And so, right. It's no accident that the Japanese love baseball so much. Yeah. It's mm. very angular, stats-based. Mm, right. Yeah. You know, like, everything can come, like, the, you know, a player's, uh, more so than any other sport, like, you can really measure how good a player is based totally off of, like, these stats and numbers. It's very much, like, based on that. But yeah. I suppose that's, like, a new thing in baseball, too. That's not, that's not how it always has been. This kind of, like, mm. numbers. It's, it's always been there, but it's gotten really weird in the last, like, 15 or 20 years. Like, yeah. Moneyball, basically. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, Moneyball yeah. was, like, 2002, thereabouts that's when billy bean became the i think the manager of the oakland days um and his whole thing was like we don't need big sluggers or big stars or whatever or like lots of home runs we need a bunch of like mediocre guys who like do different things really well and so like we want a guy who can like get on base who can like walk a lot based on balls or whatever we need a guy who can like have a high on base percentage a high this or that and then they came up with all of these other new stats, like war, wins above replacement. Right, war, that's right. VORP, value over replacement player, um, BAPIP, batting average on yeah, balls in play, right. all these horrible acronyms. Um, and so that became kind of how WHIP, uh, walks and hits plus innings pitched or something. Right, right. Um, and it goes on and on with all these horrible, you know. Stats. Stats, yeah. Um, and so it's become much more about that now, and so it's, like, less fun. Although I feel like we're getting away from that, and, like, I don't know. You don't hear quite as much about those annoying stats anymore. Right. I don't follow baseball quite as much as I used to. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and so it is, I guess, fascist in that way, uh, in the sense that everything has this, like, strict measurement to it. Right. Um, so you're measuring humanity in this very strict, kind of precise way. I think there's something sort of fascist about that. Sure. You know. Sure. But, you know, when you see a good game, it's so out of control. Like, that's what makes it yeah. right. amazing to watch. Like an inside-the-park home run or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, that's also why it's dialectical. It's this thing mm. that is very heavily structured, angular, uh, stats-based, but also it can get really unexpectedly insane very quickly and randomly mm-hmm. 
And when the action happens, any kind of action happens, it's like, if you if you turn your head for, like, too long, you could miss, like, the most exciting thing oh, yeah, right. for the entire game. Yeah, and I think that's dialectical, too. Like, with a dialectical conversation or something, the most important point can happen very fast. And, like, we were talking about the uh, Minutemen earlier, like, their best songs. There's just this very brief little moment in it right. where, like, re- where the art reaches its peak. And if you're not paying attention, you can miss it. Um, and so, yeah, I think dialectics does sort of appear very rapidly and like, uh, and then it vanishes immediately. And so if you're not totally locked in, you can miss it. I think the same is the case with baseball. Sure. Um, and it's mostly boring too. Yeah. Until it's not. And then I think it's like, with, what the fuck, uh, a, a play I'll never forget, um, uh, during the... When the Dodgers were playing the Braves postseason last year, there was a play that Justin Turner strung together in the span of like three seconds, but he basically got this double play um, between, it was like third base and home. It was like absolutely insane the way it all went down. Mm. It was like a rundown type of situation. I, I can't remember the exact mechanics of it. But it was so quick, and it changed the m- momentum of the entire right. game. Yeah. And they ended up winning, even it's though they were behind. Yeah, turning something on its head. Yeah, and I was like, in a second. Yeah. holy shit. There was, like, tossing and running after someone and, like, yeah. tagging. Yes. But it was all in the span of, you know, Justin Turner in that moment. It was, like, two seconds of action. Right. And it just completely changed the entire momentum of the game. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So it's improvisation... And so it's, there can be improvisation in baseball, even though baseball is this super controlled, it's this diamond, um, you know, and there's such strict rules, there's the foul lines, anything outside the foul lines is foul, you know. Right. Um, and so there's all of these, like, rigid distinctions. And so it seems, like, super controlled and precise, but there can be, but when there is an improvised moment within that, it's extremely cool, I think. Yeah. And very rare. Because there's all these tagging maneuvers that you can do. And if you know the rules really well and you're really not that great of an athlete, but if you really understand the game, you can do all of this crazy shit. And it looks as though, how is that even possible? That guy just cheated. Right. There's no way that that's a real thing that you could do. And the umpire's like, no, 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 that's totally, that was totally fair. I mean, there was some crazy shit today. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays... He, was sl- he, he slid into fur, or slid home, and kind of hit the catcher, and he was safe, I think, but mm. then the catcher's, like, card with all of the different pitches on it fell out of his pocket. Oh, shit. And the dude, just the, the player from the opposite team, just, like, picked it up and, like, put it in his pocket. Huh. And the umpire was like, I mean, I'm <laughs> Yeah, and it's kind of like war in that way, like <laughs> getting someone's like secret codes or whatever. Like when the British yeah. like solve the awesome. Nazi Enigma machine or whatever, Enigma code. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, and so it is very warlike. Yes, and it is. But it's like spontaneous war, dialectical war. Yeah, and of. it's very like you can have these kind of, you can be not that physically, athletic, but you can be really really smart and be good at baseball. Right. 
And so Socrates was not athletic. He was, like, fat, ugly, whatever. But he was the best at talking. He, right. he probably would have been good at baseball. Yeah. I don't know. Because, like, or, like, Babe Ruth. You know? Right, right, right. Like just this big, fat guy, but he was the best baseball player ever. Yeah. Um, and I think that's sort of what dialectics is, too. Like, if you have one thing, one angle, one way in, then you can do a lot with it. Right. Um, you don't have to be well-rounded, basically. No. And I think that's sort of what dialectics is. Like, people who are good at dialectics, they're not well-rounded, necessarily. No. They're just good at, like, one or two things. They're good at talking. They're good at, like, one perspective, sort of, that they develop, and they, like, dig in. Um, and, yeah, baseball players, they're not well-rounded at all. They're all pretty stupid, for the most part, because they're doing this repetitive thing. And they're just playing their one position, for the most part. Um, or, like, if you're a relief pitcher, like, you just come in at the end of the game. Right. So there are all these, like, specialists. Yeah. You know, it's very specialized. I feel like that's sort of what dialectics is, too. Um, but you were so dialectical homo-fascism. <laughs> so we've talked about the dialectics of baseball, the fascism of baseball a little bit. What about the homo part? I guess that kind of goes without saying. So Pants. Whenever I watch baseball games with Ty, it's always like, oh my god, his ass looks so nice. Holy yeah. shit. The, the asses on those men are great. And yeah. It's because... So you want to peg all of them. You're, you're doing a Cara Delvin. You're doing a liberal I'm just, feminism. I'm strapping it up. <laughs> I would peg every Dodger. I would love that. I'm sure you would. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what would you get out of it, though, really? Just power? It would just be awesome. It would just be fun. Because I'd get to meet them all. <laughs> you can meet them without pegging them, Pat. <laughs> you can just have a conversation with them. You know, you don't have to... Peg every Dodger. Mm. They're not dodging that. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um... Well, I think... Uh, that'll do it for us <laughs> um, so thanks for listening everyone uh, this has been me Ted Matrakis this has been another episode of the Daily Dialectic uh, with special guest Ty Lee yeah. alright we'll see you later maybe <laughs> <laughs> probably not bye bye